Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to our time of study in God's Word. We're continuing today our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 45 and the wedding of weddings. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come now before your word, we thank you that we serve a king whose throne is eternal and that all of your promises are yes and amen, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, in Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at this text, we come, as Luther once said, as beggars in need of bread, beggars in need of the grace of God, beggars in need of the bread of life and the living water that only you can provide to our weary and uh, hungry souls. So, Lord, we hunger and pants after you uh, because you are the bread of life. You are living water to your people. And so, Lord, as we open now this great psalm, we pray that you would use it in our life, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would help us to grow to be more like you. But above that, and even beyond that, that you would show others of their great need of Christ and to bow the knee and to repent and to believe and put their trust and hope in the only King and the only Lord and the only Savior that he alone can save. So Lord, we thank you for this time in which you have given to us now to open your word and pray. And thank you, Lord, that Isaiah 55, 11 says your word will not return without void, that it will go forth and it will accomplish that which you aim to do, that you will use the teaching and the preaching of your word to uh, use it uh, in the life of your people to help them to grow, to be more like you, and to conform them more and more into the image of Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given to us now, and pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, and that you would bless the hearing of your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 says this, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are like you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, <coughs> O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of 
kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the kings will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions falling behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. At the end of J.R. Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, a band of friends enters into the royal city. The war has been won. We know the dangers have been faced. The sacrifices have achieved an epic victory. This being the case, Frodo Baggins, the book's unlikely hero, he requests permission of the newly crowned King Aragorn to begin the long journey to his home. And yet King Aragorn asks his friend to remain a little while longer, explaining that the ends of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. And so Frodo wonders what this end could be since the aims of their quest have been all achieved. And his answer comes at midsummer when Aragorn's beautiful fiancée, Arwen, arrives for the wedding that would crown their joy with blessing. And one of the more blatantly theological passages that Tolkien writes, he says, Frodo, when he saw her come glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her, was moved with great wonder. And Frodo said, at last, I understand why we have waited. This is the ending, he says. And now nestled in the book of Psalms is a unique chapter that declares the same truth that we just considered from the pen of Tolkien, except it is written, Psalm 45 is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The rightful heir has come and in his saving majesty has taken up his throne. Who, what else is there for history to behold? Since Jesus Christ has conquered and established his gospel reign. Now Psalm 45 answers with a love song that depicts a royal wedding. This inspired poem reminds us why weddings hold a place of precedence among all of human celebrations. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, the psalmist begins. And this subject is the wedding of weddings that will bring an end to the Bible's history, establishing Christ's eternal joy in the the embrace of his resplendent bride, the church. In Psalm 45, the end of the eternal bliss for which we are now waiting is anticipated in a song that celebrates the wedding of Israel's King Solomon to his royal bride. And our natural fascination with weddings is greatly increased when a royal couple is involved. Princes and princesses attract round-the-clock media coverage for a reason, and because of their love interests. The royal wedding of England's Prince Charles and Princess Diana was one of the most viewed television events in history, rivaled only by the subsequent weddings of Prince William and Prince Harry. 
And Psalm 45 require, uh, tells us of even, even more epic wedding, probably celebrating the union of Solomon, Israel's most glorious and wise monarch to the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. And it's not difficult to imagine the court's poets being commissioned to commemorate such a lavish event, nor that his labor may be, have provided us with this remarkable and even unique psalm. And while Psalm 45 was perhaps occasioned by Solomon's wedding, it looks beyond that mortal king to the Messiah, the ideal monarch whose perfect and eternal reign was foreshadowed by Solomon. And now even a casual reading in these verses, it reveals that someone greater than Solomon is at play here, which is why the ancient Jewish interpreters and the Protestant reformers catalog Psalm 45 as a messianic psalm. Under what is here said of Solomon as a type, writes John Calvin, the holy divine union of Christ and his church is established and set forth as such, he says. So Psalm 45, it begins with a comment by the poet La Tourette. Psalm 45, 1 says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And if weddings today are worthy of investing in having a skilled photographer, this wedding of weddings is worthy of the spirit-inspired pen brimming with enthusiasm. The structure of our psalm today that the writer gives to Psalm 45 follows the wedding customs that the poet would have witnessed. Verses 2 through 9, they offer praise to the king as he comes to take out his bride. Verses 10 through 15, then address the bride as she is led to the wedding feast to enter the marital bliss with the groom. In the first stanza of Psalm 45, the royal groom appears and the poet breaks forth in praise. Psalm 45, 2 says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, a wedding tuxedo can make any man look good. But we can only imagine the splendor of Solomon as he emerged from his palace in his wedding robes. And more significantly, we should recall the gospel accounts of the coming of Jesus and the beauty he displayed on his life here on earth. Fairest Lord Jesus, we sing of the church's groom. Thee I will cherish, thee I will honor. Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. And the psalmist here refers to the king as handsome, but we know that God is more concerned with inward virtues. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It was in his character that Jesus shone most in his regal beauty. Jesus possessed perfect grace in his soul. His heart was perfectly good and holy. His demeanor was perfectly fitting for every occasion. And this shows the tragedy of those who have never examined the lovely, full humanity of Jesus. And some people think Jesus' name, use Jesus' name in vain, but they never appraise his beauty. How much more awesome is this divine nature extolled by the Apostle John in John 1.14, which says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now the psalmist pays particular attention to the king's speech in verse 2 when he says, Grace is poured upon your lips. 
And so Solomon is lauded for the wise words of his Proverbs and the matchless lyrics to marital love and song of Psalms. And yet this praise is best heap on none other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. To attend his Sermon on the Mount is to be lifted up to a higher ethic than ever before. To be challenged by Jesus' parables is to have your priorities uh, challenged and turned right upside down. His promises of salvation shine a light to drive out fear, doubt, and despair. And even Peter testified to the glory of Christ's teaching when commitment was challenged by Jesus. And the future apostle answered in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Christ's grace is shown not only in the message, but also in the might of his word, making his doctrine effectually powerful to salvation to whomsoever he will. And so great was Jesus' gracious authority that even his enemies were disarmed. And even when the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus, they came back explaining in John 7:46, no one ever spoke like this man. By his word, Jesus stilled the storm. He cast out demons. He drew sinners from unbelief to, into saving faith. And even though Christ has now ascended into heaven, the word in the Bible retains the same grace for salvation as it's read and it's heard and it's preached today. And given the grace poured out in the word of God, Christians should devote themselves to understanding and applying this doctrine of Christ, taking up a thrilling, lifelong pursuit of understanding and applying his teaching to their life. Moreover, the psalmist calls forth the king's marital valor. Psalm 45, 3 says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in verse 3 of Psalm 45. And these words, we need to understand, do not easily apply to Solomon, who 2 Chronicles 22, 8-9 tells us was not a man of war. But they do apply to the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ, who brings peace by destroying all his enemies and ours. 1 John 3, 8 teaches that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus likewise came to strike down the powers of sin and death, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and Hebrews 2, 14 tell us. In the long years of church history, Jesus has protected his church during the fiercest persecutions and cast down every brand of unbelief and tyranny. And given his proven might against the powers of earth and of hell, the church should not fear the tempest of this world, but should take up the cry of the psalmist. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, especially when darkness and evil abound. Christians should remember that as Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ is the true champion of the church. And so we must, by inopportune prayer, call him to the conflict. And let's be clear about something. We are living in a time when, let's be honest, the the church seems to be under assault. Christians seem to be under assault. And we need to take up the sword of the word of God, which is the only offensive weapon Paul says that we have in Ephesians 6. And Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so what does a sword do? It cuts. It cuts. It pierces. 
It gets to the root cause of the issue. And this is what the sword of the word does. This is what the faithful preaching of God's word does. It, it cuts away at our hearts. It molds us. It shapes us to be more like Christ. We are facing challenges, friends, in the public square in every single arena. We are facing an open challenge from transgenderism, which is another religion in and of itself. They openly defy and challenge Christianity by its very philosophy. We are living in a time when we are seeing even the influx of homosexuality in the church. We are seeing great and disturbing things about gender and sexual, sexual fluidity in our day. And all these things, they can get us discouraged. They can get us upset and even greatly discouraged. And what we need to remember is that we need to remain faithful to the word in the midst of every situation, in the midst of every conflict, in the midst of every difficulty. We need to not be less biblical. We need to be more biblically rooted. We need to be grounded and shaped by the word in our character, in our thoughts, in our affections, in the totality of our life in Christ. And so the psalmist here now calls for the king in his majesty to ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds, Psalm 45, 4 says. Christ's manner of warfare is consistent with his character and his salvation. He wages war with weapons of truth, humility, and righteousness. And these divine tactics triumphed at the cross where Jesus routed sin and death by humble obedience to the righteousness of God and dying for our sins in our place and for our sin and rising again on the third day. And so Psalm 45 states that the king should go forth in war for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness, exerting all the strength of his hand on their behalf. The world hates and even suppresses these heavenly virtues, but the victorious Messiah powerfully upholds his truth, the humility of godliness, and the righteousness received through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to understand, as I mentioned earlier, that the sword of the Lord, it refers usually to God's revealed word in the 66 books of the word of God. In fact, in John's vision of the glorified Christ, he saw that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword in Revelation 1.16. Everyone who has been convicted of sin by Christ's word pierced as to our need for salvation can attest to the praise given in Psalm 45, verse 5, which says, Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. You see, the point here is that in the end, history will divide all mankind into those who fall before Christ's word in a sin-confessing, grace-seeking faith, and those rebels who at the final judgment will be felled by Christ's word of condemnation. And now... Psalm 45, verse 6, tells us that the royal groom has presented himself in splendor in order to wed his bride. The psalmist responds with more praise here, this time directed to three manifestations of the king's reign. First his throne, then his scepter, and then his courts. 
Psalm 45's praise for the throne of the Davidic king provides one of the greatest statements of Christ's deity in Psalm 45, verse 6, which says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it's true, as the opponents of Christ point out, the angels and the high offices are sometimes referred to by the word Elohim, the Hebrew word for God. But just as John Calvin points out, there are no instances in Scripture where the title God is applied to an individual human apart from the coming of the God-man Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks up this verse in arguing that Christ is superior to the angels in Hebrews 1.8. And here we encounter an echo of the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity together with the deity of Christ in the very heart of the Old Testament. It's one thing to admire a great king as godlike in some respect or even as godly in character, but only Jesus can be addressed as God. And it's because of Christ's deity that his throne can be praised for being eternal. And this addresses the problem of Israel's kingship, since even her best and even holiest kings were mortal men whose reign would end. In fact, Solomon himself provides an example of the royal mortality, for despite the glory of his reign, the bulk of his kingdom was lost by his foolish son Rehoboam. The cry, O king, live forever, was frequently heard by the oriental monarchs such as Solomon, but his fleshly dynasty had no hope of achieving the wish. Only in the coming of Christ, David's greater son, was this psalm fulfilled. And we need to understand this, that because Jesus' throne is eternal, all who come to Jesus in faith in the name of Christ will never face a day in all the long ages yet to come when their Lord and Savior and King is not reigning for their salvation. Calvin says, that the encouragement received from Christ's eternal throne is this. As he is the head of the church, the author and protector of our welfare, he reigns not merely for a time, but possesses an endless sovereignty. From this, we derive our greatest confidence, both in life and death. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 speaks similarly of the blessing that results from Christ's eternal ministry when he says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In fact, the psalmist goes on to praise the king's righteous scepter, in Psalm 45, 6 through 7, he says, The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved and hated wickedness. And so it's by wielding his scepter that a king rules, and the Savior is a reign of God's just and holy law. Christ came to bring God's righteousness to his people on earth, not merely the rights of God, but also the righteousness from God that sinners need. In the gospel, as Paul writes in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And therefore, under Christ's scepter, through faith in his word, his subjects may be instructed in all righteousness and may be justified and made righteous before him. And now the psalmist additionally observes that the Father's blessing on the righteous Savior. Psalm 45, 7 says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, Old Testament office bearers, the prophets, the priests, and the kings were installed, installed I should say, by anointing with oil. 
And here, neither the anointed nor the, the one who anoints as a mere man supplying another testimony to the Trinity in the Old Testament. And not only is the king extolled as, O God, in Psalm 45, 6, but now the same king is told that he will be anointed by God, your God, in Psalm 45, 7. Only the New Testament teaching of the one God in three persons enables us to understand this whole point. In fact, the whole counsel of God's word sheds light on Psalm 45, 7, showing that in view of the fulfillment of Christ, of the eternal covenant of redemption, by which God the Son agreed to redeem and justify sinners through his righteous atoning death, God the Father agreed to make the Son the head of a great company of his people who would enter into the eternal joy of his salvation. And it was for, for his provision of righteousness to guilty sinners that Christ was anointed with the Spirit. It was his disciples, sinners, declaring, declared righteous in him through faith, who became Jesus' joyful companions in the wedding feast in the ages to come. And now finally, the poet commends the king's noble court in Psalm 45, 8 through 9. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory towers. Stringed instruments make you glad, o daughters of kings and among you ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the clinging gold of Ophir. And the aroma of a spiced rose makes the royal court a fragrant delight, even as the king's palace resounds with the skillful playing of sweet music. And while this praise was undoubtedly merited during Solomon's wedding, it provides a wonderful commentary on those who would follow Christ. Jesus was often criticized for befriending the lowly of the earth. And yet in the company of their royal Savior and Lord, his people are so elevated so that all believing women have become daughters of the king in places of honor. Ophir was Solomon's source of gold. The wedding became daughters. Uh, the, now the wedding, I should say, concludes with this new queen decked in the glittering ore from these mines, standing at the king's right hand in the light of his glory. And so as we come to the end of this psalmist praise for Christ, we should realize what a strong incentive has been provided for us to give homage to Christ in faith in his name. To who else will we turn for the righteousness that we so desperately lack but need if we are going to stand in the, in God, before God's judgment? To what power and authority will we run seeking refuge, save that the one whom God has enthroned forever, whose scepter is righteousness, and who at the end of days will establish justice on the earth? And where else can poor sinners find salvation except in the courts of the eternal king who cleanses our robes in the blood of his cross to forgive our sins forever? And after the king had been suitably praised, the psalmist now turns his pen to extol the royal bride. And seeing her emerge from his residence, he counsels her on coming to so great a king. Psalm 45, 10 through 11 says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The Bible establishes marriage between one man and one woman for life in Genesis 2. And there the husband is told to leave his parents and to cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh in Genesis 2:24. And here the same charge is given to the bride as she comes out of her royal groom. 
She must be willing to leave or pass behind her former name, her former ways, and her former associations in order to offer allegiance to her husband and Lord. And the exhortation of Psalm 45.10 strengthens the theory that Psalm 45 was originally written to celebrate Solomon's marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. Solomon is often criticized for this marriage along with literally hundreds of other wives he took for the unclean pagan nations surrounding Israel. But the daughter of Pharaoh was his legitimate wife. While Solomon's other wives corrupted his heart so as to cause him to fall into idolatry, the Bible says nothing about that about Pharaoh's daughter. Moreover, of the false gods that Solomon ultimately served, none of them were idols of Egypt, as 1 Kings 11, 1 through 9 tells us. And it's true that 1 Corinthians 7:39 forbids believers to marry unbelievers. And yet we also must say Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter in his capacity as a type or forerunner of Christ. And so Solomon, in his union with Pharaoh's daughter, the wedding celebrated in the psalm, does not depict the corruption of a carnal man through an unbiblical marriage, but rather was intended to prefigure the marital union between the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ, and the church, composed of sinners redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation in the whole world. So Solomon, the man then closest to God, was wed to the daughter of Pharaoh, the man furthest from God in all the earth. And so this depicts the glory of Christ's love, redeeming the vilest of sinners through union with himself, reconciling them to holy communion with God. A bride joined to Christ must therefore put her former ways behind her. To be a Christian is to leave behind the desire for the praise of men offered by the world. Instead, be enamored of our Savior. We owe Christ as Lord and we bow to him. As Psalm 45:11 says, offering our lives in reverence, obedience to his holy will. Charles Spurgeon says to renounce the world is not easy, but it must be done by all who are affronts to the great king for a divided heart he cannot endure. We must come forth of the house of fallen nature for it is built in the city of destruction. Not that natural ties are broken by grace, but ties of the sinful nature, bonds of graceless affinity. Our half-heartedness in pursuing this separation from sin explains so much of the church's feebleness today. And Spurgeon rightly says, only when the church, the whole church, leads separated lives will the full splendor and the power of Christianity shine forth upon the world. And so it is for the sake of the bride's sanctification, her separate separation to holiness, that so much of Psalm 45 is devoted to praise for Christ's glorious person and glorious work. Only by meditating on him can we lose our craving for the world. And believers who are excited to be growing in their knowledge of Jesus have to forsake the darkness and walk in the light of his presence. Christians can be excited by the world only when they have not turned the eyes of their hearts to gaze on Jesus and set their desire on fellowship with him. See, Jesus calls his people to renounce their former lives of sin and is himself the one whose glory should motivate our lives and whose grace empowers our sanctification. And so what then will happen for those who turn from the world to the marital embrace of the Savior King? And so Psalm 45 tells us three things about this. First, the sanctified believer will begin to bear the marks of the king's glory. 
all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold, verse 13 tells us. For a believer to cling to the world is only to stifle their own glorification. In the pure purity of holy company, the believer's spiritual beauty comes into full flower. Psalm 45, 13 through 14 tells us, All glorious is a princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. And second, sanctified believers gain a right enjoyment of the riches of this world. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of your people. Psalm 45, 12 tells us. And Tyre was the merchantile capital of Solomon's age, and its riches would come to the king's bride. And likewise, God so rules the world so as to provide from the world for those whose hearts are fixed on him. And third, the holy believer is the happiest of people. Psalm 45, 15 says, With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Have you not noticed that the people of the world are generally unhappy despite their mad pursuit of pleasure? And so why then would a believer be drawn to the world? In contrast, the joy, joys of the committed Christian are too numerous to catalog, as illustrated in Psalm 45 by the princess bride in her joyful procession to meet her handsome groom. And chief among our blessings as Christians united to Christ by faith is fellowship with the living Christ who is the word, light of the world, the bread of life, our good shepherd, and the divine lover of our souls. You know, a true love story should result in a happily ever after life. In this world, the fairy tales fall short, but those who enter into the wedding of weddings, that eternal union between God's royal son and his church, they experience a blessing that never dims with time. And so the psalmist concludes by addressing that royal groom, a twofold benediction on his marital union that is mirrored in the prayers offered during Christian weddings today. First, this marriage will be abundantly blessed with offspring. Verse 16 tells us, In place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes of all the earth. Second, through the holy bride gathered into his embrace, Christ will receive the glory due to him because of his divine person, and even more because of his triumphant work. Verse 17 says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, and therefore nations will praise your praise you forever and ever. And this benediction reminds us that Jesus calls his people not merely to gain righteousness through faith in his name, but also to experience his love and to participate at his side in the joy of his eternal glory. As believers, we are betrothed for the weddings of weddings. Are, you, are we preparing ourselves now for the future consummation of this psalm? Are we wearing the robe of righteousness that he alone can give? And are we then preparing ourselves in the beauty of his grace, passionately seeking to be holy through his word and by prayer so that, so that praise may come to Christ through our lives? And if we're not, then we have failed to understand the story in which our lives are written, a history that is redeemed by a mighty Savior King and that culminates in a wedding fit for the King of Kings. God's call to us as the bride of Christ is simple and it's clear and it's given in verses 10 through 11, which says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, since he is your Lord, bow to him. You know, there is many things that we could say as this study concludes today. But 
as as I read from the story of Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings and as Tolkien writes of Frodo. Frodo, when he saw her come, speaking of Erwin, come glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow and a sweet embrace about her, was moved with great wonder. At last, I understand why we have made it. This is the end. As we consider today the end in Psalm 45, the end of the eternal bliss for which we are now waiting is anticipated in a song that celebrates the wedding of Israel's king to Solomon to his royal bride. Paul says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.8 that he is eagerly longing for the day. And by extension, every Christian should be longing for that day, that day when Christ will come and he will fully establish his kingdom. That is a glorious day. And yet in the meantime, in the between times, you and I as Christians should be standing fast on the grace of God in Christ alone revealed in the word of God. Because there are so many temptations to fall and to falter. And we must stand upon the rock of refuge, the very help that the Lord provides to us in the grace of Christ revealed in the word. And maybe that's not what's happening today in your life. Maybe today you're struggling. Maybe today you're faltering. And I want to say there is hope because your king reigns forever and ever. He is eternal. And he is alone can help you. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that Christ is a very present help in our time of need. That means that no matter what's happening, whether you're struggling with anxiety, whether you're struggling with lust or discouragement or fear or bitterness or grudge or depression or discouragement and, and, or anger, and the list goes on and on. The Lord is good. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is, is the one who alone can help you because he is eternal. He is the king. And he alone is worthy to be praised. And so I plead with you today, dear Christian, to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Trust the Lord whose peace is sure and steady. Trust the Lord who all of his ways are good and holy and just and perfect. And so you can trust the Lord. If you're not yet a Christian, if you've not repented and believed on Christ, I plead with you that that one day, Philippians 2 tells you every, every tongue and uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And so if you've not repented and put your trust and hope in Christ, I plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. There is hope. Our King reigns forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it is enough for us, that it tells us not only about the beginning, it tells us not only about the end, it tells us about everything in between. Your word is enough for us. It's enough for our life. It's enough for our godliness. It's enough to teach us and instruct us in the way in which we are to go and in the way in which we are to trust, in the way in which we are to grow, to be more like you. 
So we thank you, Lord, for your word. And may, Lord, we increase, as Second Peter 1, 5 through 10 says, in the, in the qualities therein of godliness. And may we train ourselves by the grace of God with the help of the Spirit. May we discipline ourselves as First as uh, Timothy 4 t- tells us to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. Help us, Lord. We are beggars, as Luther said, in need of your grace, the grace that you alone provide, the help that you alone give. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are enough and that you are a present help and that you are all that we need and that in you we have our life, we have our being, we have everything that we need because you are enough. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word and that it teaches us and that it instructs us in the way in which we are to go. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.